for centuries, the consensus of thoughtful, intelligent, reasonable people was that the universe was geocentric. That is that the uh, sun, the moon, the stars orbit around the earth, that the earth was the center of the universe, solar system. But um, <clears throat> Copernicus and Galileo, Renaissance era uh, mathematicians, physicists, astronomers demonstrated mathematically, scientifically, that actually that that wasn't the case, that popular consensus had been wrong, that actually the sun was the center of our solar system and that the earth orbited around it. Now, history has shown us over and over numerous times that oftentimes popular consensus is wrong. Now, it's easy for us to look back in the past and see that, all the, the numerous examples, but oftentimes it's hard for us to even stop to consider what, what is a popular consensus saying today, and we'll say tomorrow that 100 years from now or decades from now, we'll say, you know what, I think we might have missed the boat on that. And so uh, over the next few weeks, I want us to lean in. I want us to put on the table and consider the possibility that maybe some of our longly held popular consensus ideas and understandings about marriage, both popular consensus ideas that come from a conventional or traditional viewpoint of marriage or maybe a more modern cultural point of view of marriage, that, that possibly that some of the way we think about marriage is wrong because the popular consensus is being wrong. What if much of what we understand and think about when we think about marriage isn't actually true? What if pathways to human flourishing that, that we believe and understand have actually misguided us? What if there's an actual better way to think about marriage? Well, good morning. I'm Brad one of the pastors here, and I want us to think about that for the next few weeks. If you're brand new, if you're a guest, so glad that you're here at Fellowship. We're part of a family of churches. Honored that you're here. I think this is a great opportunity. If you're new and you're exploring Jesus, you're exploring Christianity, or you're just exploring this church, to spend the next three weeks looking at what the Scripture says about marriage from a theological point of view, which is what we're going to do today. In other words, what is marriage really? Like when we begin to define it, what is marriage? Uh, next week we'll look at it culturally, that in light of all that's going on around us and how we talk about gender roles and how we talk about just the realities of the world we're living in, what does marriage look like today? And then uh, we'll end in uh, week three talking about it practically. Get down ground level in our driveways and talk about what does it look like to love each other till death do us part. Now before we jump into the scripture... I want to address some elephants in the room, if you will, some precursors, make some opening comments. Uh, number one, uh, first elephant in the room is not everyone in the room is married. If you have been single for longer, longer than you wanted to be single, or if you have suffered through the pain of divorce, uh, three weeks talking about marriage might feel like the opportune time to skip church. And I understand that. I don't want to in any way downplay those feelings, those emotions. But here's what I would want to say to you. Is that if you ever hope to be married or if you want to be married again, I believe that what we're going to talk about for the next three weeks will be remarkably helpful and beneficial to you. And I also believe in a mysterious way that it could actually be healing as well. So my ask of you is to lean in even when it hurts sometimes. A second elephant in the room is this, um, unhappy 
an insecure marriage is. As opposed to marriages in crisis. When, the, when your marriage is in crisis, you'll do whatever you can, and you're like, yes. But when, when, when there's just some unsettled unhappiness or when there's insecurity, even talking about marriage creates more anxiety. I remember a few years ago, I was uh, organizing a, a weekend conference here in Knoxville and had a really renowned marriage speaker who was going to come in, and I was really excited about it. And a lot of my friends were not excited about it and weren't thrilled with me. And I pressed in. I said, why, why, why are you not excited about this? And they were honest. They said, Brad, right now things are going okay. We're not mad at each other. Uh, we're not angry. And the last thing I want to do is show up for a weekend and be like, oh, now there's this thing exposed where we've got to try to do better. We've got to try to do more. We've got to try to get uh, things fixed. Like we, nothing was broken until this weekend when we found out about it. And uh, I think that was nervous, anxious laughter. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're worried about too. Um, and so look, I also, I get that tension. But there's something about that tension that reveals something in our hearts. And I want to say a couple of things that, that sound bold, and I think they are bold, but, but lean in and, and, and let me show you this. If we feel that tension in our heart, it becomes a little bit like an ultrasound. I had an ultrasound on my elbow, a little tendonitis. The doctor said, Brad, you're not... A young man anymore this week, uh, but it was amazing. They, they they hooked put that ultrasound up to my elbow, and I could see uh, where tendons were out of whack. I could see inside of it. When we when we hear these things and they and they cause us to get anxious, it becomes an ultrasound into our heart and reveals two really important things. One is that we don't understand the purpose of marriage, and two, we haven't realized the fullness and the beauty of the gospel. And I want you to lean in if you're feeling that anxiety for no other reason that you would find and discover the true purpose of marriage and that we would realize the beauty and goodness of the gospel. A third elephant, last elephant in the room, is the, is the reality around us. So I want to put my cards on the table. I have an agenda. For me personally, the last two years have been the hardest in my life when it comes to friends of mine, close dear friends of mine, going through enormous difficulty, strain, pain, and even divorce in their marriages. It's been the most significant um, season of pastoral ministry for me in this regard. I don't think I could go back in the last 24 months and find a month where I didn't get a text, a phone call, or an email from someone saying they were in crisis. And so it's personal. Fellowship, our fellowship of churches, we have a counseling center. Uh, last month we hired another counselor to specialize specifically in couples counseling because literally we, we could not in, even manage the, the number of people we were working with and ministering with who were struggling with this. Now, now, I don't want that to freak you out. I don't want that to depress you. Uh, there's enormous reason for hope. So in the midst of the last two years of incredible hardship and pain and sorrow, I've also seen remarkable breakthroughs. I've also seen God do some incredible things, bring reconciliation and healing. But I want to speak to where we are in reality. And I really believe, Pastor, and we've talked about this for the last six months or so as a team and a group of elders, is that we need this. Now, even if you come into the room today and things are healthy and good, and you're like, man, I've been married for 40 years, we're rocking and rolling, I would say that you need this too because we're not a collection of individuals who come to an event to get a motivational speech. We're a spiritual family. 
And when one of us hurts and when one of us suffers, we all suffer and we all hurt. And so there are going to be people in your life, maybe your kids, maybe a friend, maybe a, uh, a, a co-worker, who find themselves in difficult spots and they, and they open up to you. And we want you to be able to be equipped with hope to give back to them. So even if things are great for you, I think the next three weeks will be helpful in equipping us to be even better brothers and sisters in Jesus together. So let's get at it. Ephesians chapter 5. The longest portion in the Bible devoted specifically to marriage is Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, it's actually a longer passage than we realize. Oftentimes we think it begins with verse 22 and you get there. Actually, we won't actually read those today. We'll read those next week. But it actually begins a little bit uh, further back, I believe. But in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is really getting at the heart of what marriage is. He echoes Genesis chapter 2. He echoes the teachings of Jesus. And he essentially lays out and says, this is marriage. So now before we consider how Paul articulates what the scriptures say and what God designed in marriage, I want us to wrestle with the question that we had on the the trailer. When you think about marriage, what comes to your mind? What do you think about when you think about marriage? Now pause just for five seconds and answer that question. Some of you, even a friend of mine, I won't throw him under the bus this morning, said suffering for the Lord. Um, A little uneasy laughter. You can laugh about that, okay? Um, But what do you think about when you think about marriage? I think some people think any number of these things. Uh, That's when two people fall in love and they make a commitment to one another. It's a mutually beneficial relationship between two people. It's a legal union between two compatible partners. You found somebody, you're a good match, let's make this legal. A social construct for companionship. One of the human's heart's deepest challenges is loneliness. And now, more than ever, in marriage, some would say, creates a social construct for companionship. Uh, or, Or maybe a social construct for sex, children, and family. Now here, all of those things are good things, and they are important. But none of those things are the purpose of marriage. They are the byproducts of marriage. Actually, I would go as far as to say this, is that the purpose of marriage is not to make you happy. It's not for you and your soulmate to find a way to live life together. Uh, Though healthy marriage can bring a sense of happiness, though you can experience intimacy and all of those things, none of those things are the reason and purpose and meaning of marriage. So what is marriage about? Glad you asked. Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 31. I'm just going to look at two Verses where Paul describes the essence of what marriage is. We'll unpack this today. Ephesians 5, verse 31. If you don't have your Bible, you can check it out on your iPhone, new version, or follow along on the screen behind me. Here's what the scripture says. And this is Paul, but he's, it's actually not Paul's words. He's quoting Genesis here. He's quoting the very first description of marriage in God's uh, written word to us. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm talking about Christ and the church. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, or a woman will leave her father and mother and join to his wife. So the first thing that we see in this process, in this formulation, in this Thing called marriage is leaving. 
There's, there's a new reality that's going to be created. There's a moving away. The Greek text actually for this word literally means to bid farewell. In, in ancient times, this was significant because your family was everything. It was your heritage. It was your tradition. It was your safety net. And, and you would leave your family to start something new. Now today, especially since people are getting married older and old, at older ages, usually the average is somewhere about 28 or 29 today, uh, most people who are getting married have already done the leaving part. They're on the career track. They've got a whole new set of life. And so maybe a modern way for us to think about this in some ways is, leaving our, our closest friends, our closest girlfriends, our closest guy friends, uh, maybe even rethinking how we think about our career. Like we are leaving one reality because we are getting into a new reality where there's leaving involved. And then it says that, the, that he is joined to his wife. So there's a leaving and then there's a joining. Right? Now, this particular word, so, some of you maybe uh, use the English Standard Version. It says to hold fast. Some of the older English versions said that, that the two would cleave to one another. Uh, uh, the Greek term for joined together here is proskalao, which means to glue upon. I love that picture. That a man will leave his family, he'll leave this, and he will glue himself upon his bride. Now, let me help you with the visual image there a little bit more. Uh, if you uh, know anything about woodworking, if you take two joints of wood that are going to come together and you've sanded those and you make sure that they are planed and they're flush, when you put those joints together and you clamp them and that wood dries, that joint will actually be stronger than the wood. Matter of fact, if you go to break that joint, you won't break it where the wood is at or where the glue comes together. You'll actually rip out the rest of the wood. That once it's glued together, a glue joint is actually stronger than the original wood. That's how Paul is describing. Actually, that's how God is describing in Genesis what it means when a man and a woman come together. They come together and they glue, and that bond actually becomes stronger than anything that was before. And then the two become one flesh. Another interesting word picture here. This word becoming literally means to exist, to happen. In ancient literature, this word that is used to mean to become was most often used to describe when a new baby was born. In the New Testament, it's also used to describe conversion. So in other words, there was one thing and now something new has been created. And I think this is important. That new thing is now one thing. There's no longer uh, uh, the, the two of us, absolutely, are, do we bring our personalities together? Do we bring our histories together? But it's no longer, uh, for me and for Julie, it's no longer Brad and Julie. It's, it's the rabies together. We are one thing. And then Paul says this. He's, so he describes the functionality of it, but then he really gets into the nitty-gritty, if you will, and says this is what marriage is for. He says, this mystery is profound. Again, he's echoing Genesis 2, but he's also echoing Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. When he says this mystery is profound, what he's trying to say here is marriage is different than other kinds of relationships. We have lots of relationships. You have a relationship maybe with your mailman. Maybe you have a favorite barber or hairstylist. You have close friends. You have people you're, you work with, and you have different kinds of relationships. And what he's saying here is marriage is not like those kinds of relationships. It's not even like the relationship between you and your parents or between you and a sibling. It is altogether unique. It is significant. And then he says this. But I, 
I'm not talking about some of the things that you're thinking I'm talking about. I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. And that's the key phrase. He says, marriage isn't about soulmates. It's not primarily about economics. It's not primarily about happiness. It's not primarily about compatibility. It is primarily about Christ and his church. Here's how Tim Keller phrases it in The Meaning for Marriage. He says that the meaning of marriage is gospel reenactment. It is, is the gospel put on display that when we demonstrate marriage, what we're actually doing uh, above all else is showing not only ourselves, but everyone around us what it was for Christ to love, pursue, and to be married to his bride, his redeemed church. It is a picture of the church. To borrow a phrasing that I use in weddings uh, from Andrew Wilson, a pastor and theologian in the UK, he phrases it this way, that this, marriage, weddings, the things that we see and relate physically, are actually about that, the gospel of Jesus. When a, Christ, when a Christian wedding is done properly, this gets personified. Let me show you how. Symbols, parables, shadows. Sometimes this is about that. Flowers are about love. Signatures are about promises. Fireworks are about celebration. And what Paul is saying here is marriage is about the Christian gospel. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. So a wedding begins, and the bride is, or excuse me, the groom is always at the front. He's pursued his bride, he's won her heart, and now he's waiting for her. The bride comes in, right? And what does everyone do? We all stand to our feet and we see the bride in her immaculate, white, spotless dress. She's beautiful. She's coming in. She gets presented to the groom and they declare in their betrothal pledge that they have no other partners. They hold hands. They make promises to have and to hold for better or for worse till death do us part. They exchange rings, and with those rings, they're symbolizing their eternal covenant with one another. They sign their names and make their vows legal. As the ceremony concludes, they walk out together as one. Everything that he has is hers. Everything she has is his. You go to the party. You go to the reception. Everyone celebrates with food and dancing. Later, the couple celebrate their physical union, and they share all of their possessions, and she even takes on his name. The two become one, and here's the point that the wedding is making, is that this is actually about that. Jesus has made his people ready. Jesus has pursued his bride. He has won their hearts. His death for our sins makes us beautiful, makes us white without any spot. We're given to him and to no one else, and we make promise. Jesus says this to us. He says, I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. For richer or for poorer, when you look good and when you don't look good, I am with you to the end. And we respond with that promise to Jesus. I'll forsake all other gods, and so for long as I shall live. There's an exchange of gifts. We receive his spirit. There's a legal declaration. We are pronounced righteous in his sight. We walk on united as one. Everything that God has becomes ours. We get his love. We get his grace. We get his power. Everything that we have becomes his. He takes our shame. He takes our past. And he takes our guilt. 
We celebrate with a meal. We did it last week. We call it communion, the bread and the wine. We express our physical union with Jesus in baptism, saying that we are united and one with him. We give him all of our possessions to say everything we have is yours. We even take on his name, Christian. Two become one. This is actually about that. Marriage is designed to be a picture, a play, a demonstration, and reenactment of God's redemptive grace and his pursuit of his people. So how does that apply to us practically? How does that glorious good thing meet us where we are? Let me give you three quick things to finish our morning out. So what does it mean for marriage to be a picture of God's gospel and God's grace? Here's the first thing it means for us. It means that God rules over what he institutes. God rules over what he institutes. Principally, here's what it means. If you're a follower of Jesus, we don't get to make marriage what we want it to be. Even non-Christian marriages that are thriving, either knowingly so or unknowingly so, are usually modeling the biblical principles of what it means to be married in a healthy way. When we use marriage for something other than what it was intended to be, it usually becomes a disaster. Now, probably almost everyone in this room has a smartphone. Your smartphone's good for a lot of things. It's actually terrible for a lot of things, but that's not the point this morning. It's good for a lot of things, right? You can make phone calls and talk to people. You can send text messages. You can check your email. You can post on your social media. You can buy any number of things on Amazon.com sitting right in the seat where you're at today. You don't even have to bring a paper Bible to any church anymore. You can pull up your Bible app on your phone. Uh, you can tell your phone to tell your vacuum cleaner to start working in your house. It's amazing the things that we can do with our phone, but... If we use our phone for things that it wasn't designed for, it's not going to go well. If you want to hang some new pictures up in your house and you use your phone for a hammer, Apple is not going to say, you know what? The use of the phone as a hammer is covered in the warranty. No, they're going to say you're out of luck because you, did, you weren't using for the phone for something you designed it for. When you and I try to use marriage as a way to satisfy the deepest longing of our souls, we put an unbearable weight on our spouse, and it actually becomes crushing. And we use marriage for something that wasn't intended to be, and it actually becomes a disaster. When it becomes a way to escape something or somehow, oh, I finally found someone who is, who is all of these things. We use it for something it wasn't intended for. It ends up biting us. Marriage is God. So we... We must, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, say, okay, Lord, I am going to surrender and open up my heart and open up the realities. My marriage, for it to work, it must be what you intended for it to be. A second, a second lesson. Marriage isn't primarily about what you can get. It's primarily about what you can give, including this idea of happiness now, you're going to find a trend over, the, over 2019, probably 2020, that we're going to keep hammering away at, at our culture's notion that the, the end of our life, the essence of your life, the purpose of your life, you wake up in the morning is to pursue happiness, that that actually is destructive, that that is not the purpose of life. And oftentimes, we think about marriage as some way to be happy, Matter of fact, so many marriages end, and, and, and when, you, when you're meeting with a counselor, they, tell, they talk about the reasons. I'm just not happy anymore. 
He just doesn't make me happy anymore. She just doesn't make me happy anymore. We're just, I just, here's the phrase we like to use, deserve to be happy. But that's not what marriage was intended for. Matter of fact, if you think the mission and purpose of marriage is happiness, then hear this. You will pursue someone who is compatible to you. You will pursue someone whom you can control. And the moment all of the things in the person that you found that pleased you, that gave you joy, that gave you happiness, that satisfied you, a sense of humor, physical attractiveness, uh, uh, an active sex life, whatever it is that you were pursuing that you think you found, the moment your spouse inevitably begins to no longer feel all of the desires and all of the, heart, uh, uh, the holes in your heart, you're not, you and I will become frustrated. We become disappointed. Like they're no longer that anymore. They changed. That's a big one. I love when I do premarital, premarital counseling with couples who are about 25 or 26. Uh, we deal with that. They changed piece. How many of you remember you? If you're 20 years old, this question doesn't affect you. If you're older than 25, how many of you remember 20-year-old you? Kind of get a show of hands. Can you remember? I know some of you have tried to forget it. You went to counseling. It's a repressed memory. Can you remember 20-year-old you? How different are you today than 20-year-old you? Almost everyone says it the same way. Oh, my goodness, so different. i got news for you. We change. We're supposed to change. You know, there are things that me and my wife enjoyed 16 years ago that we don't even find are fun anymore today. Like we've changed. And if the purpose of marriage is happiness and I change, it destroys it. But if we understand marriage to be the glorious symbol, the redemptive grace of God and his loving pursuit of his people, then you will pursue something else in marriage. You will pursue a willing and a self-sacrifice and a love that is for the good of your spouse. You will, as Jesus said, lose your life so that you can find it. The gospel is countercultural, counterintuitive to everything. That the actual pathway to joy, the actual pathway to satisfaction, the actual pathway to happiness isn't what you can get, isn't what you and I can receive, but is actually what we can in modeling the gospel of Jesus give. Matter of fact, when you hear the Bible and the Bible speaks of love, it measures love primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you're willing to give to someone else. When we get the gospel as the cornerstone for what marriage is, it changes what we expect, and it changes what we're willing to bring to marriage, and it changes how we react in it. A third, a third and final thing this morning to consider. Marriage is a covenant, not a contract. We live in a culture of contractual love. Matter of fact, if you're a fan of the Big Bang Theory, one of the ongoing plot lines is Sheldon's relationship contract. If you're going to be his roommate, he has a relationship contract. You have to meet the merits of his relationship contract. If you're going to be his friend, he has a relationship contract. Certainly, if you're going to date him or marry him, you have to meet the standards of his relationship contract. And we laugh at that, but actually today you can go online and find your own relationship contracts. But actually, we sometimes unwittingly even function that way, that marriage gets treated as a you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back, a 50-50 proposition. If you're faithful to me, I'll be faithful to you. If you're kind to me, I'll be kind to you. If you're loving to me, I'll be loving to you. If you demonstrate passion, I'll demonstrate passion. 
That's a contract. That's the same relationship you have with, you, with your cell phone company. As long as Verizon or AT&T or Sprint or whoever provides you with data, text messaging, and phone service, you'll continue to pay them a bazillion dollars a year. The moment they stop providing the service, you're going to be like, I'm done with this. I'm not paying for this anymore. And the moment you stop providing the fee, Verizon's not going to feel bad for you. Verizon's going to cut you off after about 30 days. That's a business contract. That's not how marriage was designed to be. Marriage was designed to be a covenant. And it's personified in Jesus. Here's what the gospel writers say about Jesus. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is experiencing the anxiety, the pressure, the weight of the cross that is about to come. He's about to take on the sins of all of mankind. And he goes into the garden to pray and he invites his friends, his disciples, to come with him. He says, come with me for a little while. And he asked them, he asked them one thing in the garden. He says, would you sit here for a while and pray with me? The next thing we know, Jesus' friends, his closest companions, his followers are sleeping. And he comes to him, and he wakes him up, and he gives him another shot, right? Listen, guys, I'm really going through something here. Like, I've been there for you. I need you to be there for me. Would you pray with me for a little bit? And Jesus goes back to praying, and, and you know the story, right? They're asleep again. And I want you to think about this. In that moment, Jesus didn't run away. Jesus didn't say, Really? I'm about to give my life for you, and you, you can't even take a break from a nap for a moment? Like he looked throughout, throughout eternity, and he could see every single one of his followers, and he could see you, and he could see me, and he knew every single thing that we would ever do that would be a betrayal to him. He knew every action, every thought, every word that would come out of our mouth that would be a demonstration of unfaithfulness to him, and Jesus stayed on the cross. He didn't walk out. He didn't start over. He said, I'm going to stay with them. He knew every bit of their faithfulness, and he was aware of every bit of what, how you and I would not measure up, and yet he stayed. Instead of running away from self-centered, clueless, and an unworthy bride, he pressed in. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of what Paul is trying to say is what is the thing that fuels our commitment? It's not our compatibility. It's not the measurement of happiness that we get from this person. It's not their physical attractiveness. It's a demonstration of his gospel that I am going to be glued to you as one, and I'm going to stay. The number one factor for a child's self-esteem has nothing to do with their intellectual abilities to, to make it in academics, their athletic pursuits, or even what they physically look like. The number one factor in a child's uh, self-esteem is the security of, his, of the child's parents' marriage. Here's why. The child, whether or not he can articulate this or not, wants to know in the deepest part of his heart, will mom and dad be there for me? When the, the, the rubber hits the road, will you be there for me? We see it in drama. We see it in the movies. Like the worst thing that you and I can even imagine is the idea of a parent betraying his child, right? 
Because, because the, the, the easiest picture of covenant love that we most get is, is the love between a parent and his child. Like, I'm going to die for you. Like, you've, you, like you, you disobey me and you break the curfew and you do all these things. Like, you, you've, you've probably been there. Some of you have been there. I've certainly, I've, I've certainly ministered to, to, to parents whose children have maybe chose a path of addiction and they made horrible choices. And it rends the heart of their parents. And the parents keep doing everything they can for their child. It's a beautiful picture of covenant love. It's a beautiful picture of what the Heavenly Father has done for us. And here's what Paul is saying. Marriage is a contract. It's not a contract, it's a covenant. So what do you think about when you think about marriage? What comes to mind? What are some of the conventional thoughts that we have that culture tells us or maybe even tradition, maybe even how you were brought up? I really believe that if our minds, if our thoughts, if we would begin to see marriage primarily as a way of demonstrating the beauty of the gospel, that it would not only become an intellectual pursuit for us, but it would have the opportunity of working its way into our hearts. It would have a way of transforming our interactions with our spouse. It would have a way of altering our expectations of our spouse. We would stop, in some cases, thinking too little of marriage and being too flippant about it. We'll talk more about that next week. And in other cases, we would stop idolizing it like, like the whole idea of being in a relationship with someone and having this no longer sitting on the top shelf. It was never intended to be top shelf. It becomes an idol that we would see it for what it was intended to be. And then let me say one last thing for those of you in the room who have experienced the heartbreak and, and devastating consequences of divorce. You've experienced, I talked to a friend this week and, and she just wept on the phone unpacking how hurt and how devastated in her life was us. For those of you who have experienced that, see the gospel in this for you too. There, there, there is a way in which we minimize marriage in our culture. You know, Bruno Mars' Marry Me song, if you don't know it, it's a really catchy tune. You listen to the lyrics, it's like some of the worst lyrics ever penned. If it doesn't work out, we'll just go break up the next morning. It's totally undermined and minimizes the beauty of marriage, right? But then on the flip side of it, when we idolize it so much, particularly in Christian culture, like we, we oftentimes interpret it, the Bible saying that God hates divorce is that, the, that divorce is this sin, unlike other sins, that God punitively despises on his children more. When the reality is, is when he says he hates divorce, he is hating the reality of the consequences and brokenness it does in the people he loves. And so, so if you've been divorced, there is a tendency for you to feel JV in life. And here is what the gospel says. You're not JV. He, he brings you in all that brokenness and all the things that you didn't plan for, and he in, continues to invite you to the table. His covenant love doesn't have a list of sins that, that gives him an escape clause and then a list of sins that he's good with. The covenant love of the gospel of Jesus is I'm going to pursue you and I'm going to try to make you like me in everything, in the most painful parts of life and in the most beautiful parts of life. That's the story of the gospel. And that's why Paul says this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that marriage is about Christ and his church and how much he loves his church 
and how much he wants to restore his church and make his church beautiful like him and how he is willing to give everything to see that it happen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you take realities of our life and show us how much more incredible and beautiful and amazing they are. Lord, thank you for pursuing us. Thank you for being the kind of God who, though you are completely in the know about all my flaws, my weaknesses, you've seen every moment I've been selfish, you've seen every moment I pretended to be selfless but was actually doing an act of selfishness, and you stayed on the cross for me. You stayed on the cross for these, my friends. Help us to see the beauty of Jesus. Lord, where our marriages have gotten sidetracked, where our lives have gotten out of whack and out of your design, where we're using marriage for something it wasn't intended to be, would you use the truth of your word? Would you use the goodness of this reality as a way of reshaping us, of retraining us how to think, of retraining how we think about our spouse, of retraining how we think about how we should interact in love? Lord, shape us into beautiful reenactments of your gospel for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.